Chapter Fourteen of the Madman and the Pirate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Madman and the Pirate by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter Fourteen. The slopes and knolls and palm-fringed cliffs of Rantinga were tipped with gold by the western sun one evening as he declined towards his bed in the Pacific. When Marie Zeppa wandered with Betsy Waringa and her brown little daughter Zarifa towards the strip of bright sand in front of the village. The two matrons, besides being filled with somewhat similar anxieties as to absent ones, were naturally sympathetic and frequently sought each other's company. The lively Anglo-French woman, whose vivacity was not altogether subdued, even by the dark cloud that hung over her husband's fate, took special pleasure in the sedate, earnest temperament of her native missionary friend, whose difficulty in understanding a joke, coupled with her inability to control her laughter, when, after a painful explanation, she did manage to comprehend one, was a source of much interest, an undercurrent, as it were, of quiet amusement. "'Betsy,' said Marie, as they walked slowly along, their naked feet just laved by the rippling sea, "'why do you persist in wearing that absurd bonnet? If you would only let me cut four inches off the crown and six off the front, it would be much more becoming. Do let me, that's a dear. You know I was accustomed to cutting and shaping when in England.' "'But for what use?' asked Betsy, turning her large brown eyes so solemnly on her companion. It no seems too big to me. Besides, when Brother Gubbins give him to me, he— Who is Brother Gubbins? asked Marie, with a look of smiling surprise. Oh, you know, the Minster Gubbins. What come to the mission station, just after me and Waringa left for Ratinga? Oh, I see, the Reverend Mr. Gubbins. Well, what did he say about the bonnet? What did he say? Ah, he say much more an I can remember, and he look at the bonnet with the head a one side and sad and pitiful like. Ah, Betsy Waringa says he, this just the thing for you. Put it on and take it to Rantinga. It'll press the natives there. Impress them, you mean, Betsy? Well, perhaps it was that. Anyhow, I put it on, and he look at me so earnest and says with a sigh, Betsy says he, it minds me of my grandmother, and she was a good old soul. Brought me up, Betsy, she did. Wear it for her sake and mine. I make a present of it to you. Ha, ah, Betsy, said Marie, the Reverend Gubbins must be a wag, I suspect. What's a wag, Marie? Don't you know what a wag is? Oh, yes, I know. When little birds sit on a stone and shake him's tail. I've heard you and Orley say it wag. But Mr. Gubbins, he got no tail to wag, so how can he wag it? I didn't say he wagged it, Betsy, returned Marie, repressing a laugh. But you'll never get to understand what a wag means, so I won't try to explain. Look, Zarifa is venturesome. You'd better call her back. Zarifa was indeed venturesome, clad in a white flannel petticoat and a miniature coal-scuttle. She was at that moment wading so deep into the clear sea that she had to raise the little garment as high as her brown bosom to keep it out of the water, and with all her efforts she was unsuccessful, for with that natural tendency of childhood to forget and neglect what cannot be seen, she had allowed the rear part of the petticoat 
to drop into the sea. This, however, occasioned little or no anxiety to Betsy Waringa, for she was not an anxious mother, but when raising her eyes a little higher, she beheld the tip of the back fin of a shark describing lively circles in the water, as if it had scented the tender morsel and were searching for it. Her easy indifference vanished. She gave vent to a yell and made a bound that told eloquently of the savage beneath the missionary, and in another instant was up to her knees in the water with the coal scuttle quivering violently. Seizing Zarifa, she squeezed her almost to the bursting point against her palpitating breast, while the shark headed seaward in bitter disappointment. "'Don't go so deep again, Ziffa,' said the mother with a gasp, as she set her little one down on the sand. "'No, Musser,' said the obedient child, and she kept on the landward side of her parent thereafter with demonstrative care. It may be remarked here that owing to Waringa's love for and admiration of white men, Zarifa's native tongue was English, broken, of course, to the pattern of her parents. "'It was a narrow escape, Betsy,' said Marie, solemnized by the incident. "'Yes, thank the Lord,' replied the other, continuing to gaze out to sea long after the cause of her alarm had disappeared. "'Oh, Marie,' she added with a sigh, "'when will the dear men come home?' The question drove all the playful humour out of poor Marie, and her eyes filled with sudden tears. When indeed, oh, Betsy, my men will never come, for Orly and the others I little fear, but my Antonio. Poor Marie could say no more. Her nature was as quickly, though not as easily provoked, to deep sorrow as to gaiety. She covered her face with her hands. As she did so, the eyes of Betsy, which had for some time been fixed on the horizon, opened to their widest, and her countenance assumed a look so deeply solemn that it might have lent a touch of dignity even to the coal-scuttle bonnet, if it had not bordered just a little too closely on the ridiculous. "'Ho, oh, Marie!' she exclaimed in a whisper, so deep that her friend looked up with a startled air. "'See, look, a ship!' "'A ship where?' said the other, turning her eager gaze on the horizon. But she was not so quick-sighted as her companion, and when at length she succeeded in fixing the object with her eyes, she pronounced it a gull. "'No, it's not a gull, a ship,' retorted Betsy. "'Ask Zarifa. Her eyes are better than ours,' suggested Marie. "'Come here, Zifa,' shouted Betsy. Zarifa came, and at the first glance exclaimed, "'A sip!' The news spread in for a moment, for other and sharper eyes in the village had already observed the sail, and ere long the beach was crowded with natives. By that time most of the Ratingans had adopted more or less, chiefly less, of European costume, so that the aspect of the crowd was anything but savage. It is true there were large proportions of brown humanity presented to view, such as arms, legs, necks, and chests, but these were picturesquely interspersed with striped cotton drawers, duck trousers, gay gersneys, red and blue flannel petticoats, numerous caps and straw hats, as well as a few coal-scuttles, though none of the latter could match that of Betsy Waringa for size and tremulosity. But there were other signs of civilization there besides costume, for, in addition to the neat huts and gardens and whitewashed church, there was a sound issuing from the pointed spire, 
which was anything but suggestive of the South Sea savage. It was the church bell, a small one to be sure, but sweetly toned, which was being rung violently, to call in all the fighting men from the woods and fields around, for at that time the Ratingans had to be prepared for the reception of foes as well as friends. A trusty chief had been placed in charge of the village by Tomeo before he left. This man now disposed his warriors in commanding positions as they came trooping in, obedient to the call, and bade them keep out of sight and watch his signals from the beach. But now let us see what vessel it was that caused such commotion in Ratinga. She was a brig with nothing particularly striking in her rig or appointments, a mere trading vessel, but on her bulwarks at the bow and on the heel of the bowsprit was gathered a group that well deserves notice, for there, foremost of all, and towering above the others, stood Antonio Zeppa, holding on to a forestay, and gazing with intensity and fixedness at the speck of land which had just been sighted. Beside him, and not less absorbed, stood his valiant and amiable son, while around, in various attitudes, sat or stood the chiefs Tomeo and Bucci, Roscoe and Ebony, Angolo and Waputa, and little Lippi with her mother. But the native missionary was not there. He had positively refused to quit the desert, which had so unexpectedly and suddenly begun to blossom as the rose, and had remained to water the ground until his friends should send for him. The chief and prime minister of the mountain men were there because, being large-minded, they wished to travel and see the world. And Lippi was there because Zeppa liked her, while the mother was there because she liked Lippi and refused to be parted from her. Great was the change which had come over Zeppa during his convalescence. The wild locks and beard had been cut and trimmed. The ragged garments had been replaced by a suit belonging to Orley, and the air of wild despair, alternating with vacant simplicity, which characterized him in his days of madness, had given place to the old, sedate, sweet look of gentle gravity. It is true the grey hairs had increased in number, and there was a look, or rather an effect of suffering, in the fine face, which nothing could remove. But much of the muscular vigour and the erect gait had been regained during those months, when he had been so carefully and untiringly nursed by his son on Sugarloaf Island. It was not so with the ex-pirate. Poor Roscoe was a broken man. The shock to his frame from the partial burning, and the subsequent amputation of his feet, had been so great that a return to anything like vigour seemed out of the question. But there was that in the expression of his faded face, and in the light of his sunken eye, which carried home the conviction that the ruin of his body had been the saving of his soul. "'I cannot tell you, Orley, how thankful I am,' said Zeppa, "'that this traitor happened to touch at the island. "'As I grew stronger, my anxiety to return home became more and more intense. "'And to say truth, I had begun to fear that Captain Fitzgerald had forgotten us altogether.' "'No fear of that, father. The captain is sure to keep his promise. "'He will either return, as he said, or send some vessel to look after us. "'What are you gazing at, Ebony?' "'Do steeple, massa, look!' cried the negro, his whole face quivering with excitement, and the whites of his eyes unusually obtrusive, as he pointed to the ever-growing line of land on the horizon. "'You see em, glippering like fire!' 
"'I do see something glittering,' said Orlando, shading his eyes with his hand. "'Yes, it must be the steeple of the church. Father, look! It was not there when you left us. We'll soon see the houses now.' "'Thank God,' murmured Zeppa, in a deep, tremulous voice. "'Can you see it, Roscoe?' said Orley. The pirate turned his eyes languidly in the direction pointed out. "'I see the land.' he said faintly, and I join in your father in thanking God for that. But, but, it is not home to me. Come, friend, said Zeppa, laying his hand gently on the poor man's shoulder. Say not so. It shall be home to you yet, please God. If he has blotted out the past in the cleansing blood of the Lamb, what is man that he should remember it? Cheer up, Roscoe. You shall find a home and a welcome in Ratinga. "'Always returning good for evil, Zeppa,' said Roscoe, in a more cheerful voice. "'I think it is a tremendous weakness that crushes my spirits. "'But come, I'll try to cheer up, as you advise.' "'Das right, Massa,' cried Ebony, in an encouraging tone. "'And just look at the glippering steeple. "'He'll do you's hot good, something like the fire in the wilderness, to do gypsons.' "'To the Israelites, you mean?' said Orley. "'Ah, yes, the Israelites, to be sure. I'm mismembered. "'Ho, look, there's the house-tops now, and the pine-grove, "'where we used to hold paviler about you, Massa. Artie, you was lost. "'And yes, that's the house, you's own house. "'You see the wife looking out the winder, very soon. "'I knows it's by de pigsty close, "'longside where the big grumper sows libs. "'That Ziffa's so fond of playin' wid. "'Ho, Libby, come here, you see little naked ting.' He caught up the child, and sat her on his broad shoulder. "'You see de small little house? That's where Ziffa loves to play. But she'll have you to play wid soon. And Dan she'll forsake de old sow. Oh, I forget. You no understand in English.' Hereupon Ebony began to translate his information, as best he could, into the language of the little creature, in which effort he was not very successful, being an indifferent linguist. Meanwhile, the vessel gradually neared the island, stood into the lagoon, and finally dropped anchor. A boat was at once lowered and made for the shore. And, oh, how intensely and intently did those in the boat and those on the shore gaze at each other as the space between them diminished. "'They not look like enemies,' said Betsy, in subdued tones. "'And I don't think they are armed,' returned Marie, with palpitating heart. "'But I cannot yet make out the faces.' "'Only they seem to be white, some of them. "'Yes, and some of them's brown.' "'Thus, on shore, in the boat. "'Now den, Massa, you see her, and ha-ha, there's Betsy. "'I know her mung thousand. "'You see the bonnet tumbling about, like a jolly boat in a high sea? "'And Ziffa, too, with de little bonnet, all the same shape. "'Can you no see her?' Zeppa protested rather anxiously that he could not see them. And no wonder, for just then his eyes were blinded by tears, which no amount of wiping sufficed to clear away. At that moment a shriek was heard on shore, and Betsy was seen to spring, we are afraid to say how many feet, into the air. "'Dar! She recognized us now!' exclaimed Ebony with delight. And it was evident that he was right, for Betsy continued to caper upon the sands, in a manner that can only be the result of joy or insanity." while the coal scuttle beat tempestuously about her head like an enraged balloon. Another moment, and a signal from the chief 
brought the ambushed Christian warriors pouring down to the shore to see the long-lost and loved ones reunited, while Ebony ran about in a state of frantic excitement, weeping copiously and embracing everyone who came in his way. But who shall describe the agony of disappointment endured by poor Betsy when she found that Waringa was not among them? The droop of the spirits, the collapse of the coal-scuttle, language is impotent. We leave it to imagination, merely remarking that she soon recovered on the faith of the happiness which was yet in store for her. End of chapter 14